Ralph Waldo Emerson said, the name of Jesus is not so much written as it is plowed into the history of this world. And from Yale, the world-renowned historian Hadoslav Pelikan wrote, regardless of what anyone may think of him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of supermagnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of Jesus' name, how much would be left? He went on to say, it is from his birth that most of the human race dates its calendars. It is by his name that millions curse, and in his name that millions pray. About 90 years ago, Watchman Nee and the Scottish rabbi John Duncan wrote that when it comes to facing the historical figure of Jesus of Nazareth, you have only three possible conclusions to come to. He was either a liar, a lunatic, or actually the Lord he claimed to be. Taking the argument of Nee and Duncan further, C.S. Lewis wrote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as if he were a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. There was a very wealthy man in Greece who refused to accept that Jesus was Lord. He spent most of his life antagonistic to the faith. And when he got to the end of his life, instead of leaving his estate and massive wealth to his family, he decided to use all of it to buy the most secure tomb he could. He ordered that upon his death, the biggest granite stone that they could afford be placed and sealed at the entrance of his tomb. His reasoning was that if Christ was real and if Christ came back from the dead, he would be locked in and secured in his tomb by this granite stone. His children and grandchildren probably join us in thinking that that is silly. The man died and his wishes were carried out. Sometime after his tomb was sealed with this giant granite stone, either by wind or bird, the seed of a tree fell into the crack. It sprouted and eventually gave life to a tree. As the tree grew, as the forces of life worked, eventually the granite stone, due to the leverage of life, was pried off the entrance of the tomb. This man spent his entire life's fortune trying to hide from the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. The lesson for us is obvious. Life is powerful and disruptive. It can open the toughest tomb. Today we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord. And we're gonna do something special that we've not done before. We're gonna read the first eyewitness account of the resurrection in John's gospel. And then through technology, we're going to take a digital tour of the scene and do some historical, cultural, and archaeological excavating to see if the resurrection is merely a myth or a legend or if it actually happened. So if you have a Bible, let's go to John chapter 20. 
We're going to be in the first 18 verses. If you have the Bible app, you can go there. We will have a link to those notes in the YouTube description. I love reading John 20 on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, more appropriately. Now on the first day of the week, Mary, Magdalene, came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen clothes lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. The disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one on the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of our Lord. Well, friends, we've got a great treat. Uh, a good friend of ours, Bob Ronglian, he, he came a few years ago and taught for us. He just came out with a great new book called Recovering the Way. And it's uh, excellent. I've ordered 10 copies. He signed them. And we're going to give 10 of them away to randomly. So if you want one of these, uh, put a comment in the video below. We'll randomly pick 10 people and let you know. It is full of great stuff. So you're really going to love it. I've got Bob here on Zoom. And so um, Bob, say hi. And would you tell us a little bit about kind of you and how you studied over in Israel do, doing your postgraduate work and all that stuff? Sure. Hi, everybody. It's great to be with you on this uh, Easter Sunday celebration. Um, yeah, I've uh, been traveling to the, the Middle East and to the Holy Lands for over 30 years. Um, Pam and I had the opportunity to live for one year in the old city of Jerusalem, where I was doing postgraduate studies in New Testament archaeology and sociology. 
And since that time, I've been kind of had designed and have been leading a unique immersion experience that follows the life of Jesus uh, for two weeks um, chronologically and uh, really digs into the uh, historical and archaeological sites that really illustrate the way that Jesus lived and carried out his mission. And so I've been doing that for like 28 years now, and uh, we lead about four of those trips a year, and then we have a similar Footsteps of Paul trip that we lead as well. That's awesome. I hope uh, Shari and I hopefully will get a chance in the coming years to go and spend that some time with you and Pam and yes. kind of journey through the Bible in color and learn all, learn about all these things. Right now, this is the next best thing we can do without uh, going over there and, and risking our health. But Bob, would you kind of, we just read from John 20, would you kind of, uh, like, let's imagine we're all going to go to um, kind of Golgotha in this rock quarry and where the, where the, uh, the empty tomb was. There's so much archaeological that's going on there. And the setting and the scene is so important. Could you, if, if we were there right now and we were to have read from John 20, what are some things about this scene and the rocks and the garden and all this stuff that, that you know that we might not know, you know, just shoot from the hip? Kind of what, what can you fill in some of the details for us that we don't know from the text because we're not there? Well, it's interesting that when you read the Gospels, you'll notice that John seems to know more details about Jerusalem than any of the other gospel writers. He was obviously very familiar with the details there. And, uh, but all the gospels demonstrate really the same setting. And uh, that is outside the Western gate of the city wall. It's called the Genath gate or the garden gate. Uh, there was an ancient rock quarry uh, which had been used to cut large stones for the rebuilding of the temple after the Israelites returned from exile in Babylon. And uh, over the centuries that had fallen into disuse and it had become kind of overgrown. And in the first century, they turned it into a very fancy cemetery. Uh, to be born, uh, to be buried in Jerusalem was uh, a very high honor and still is in Judaism today. So they began to cut uh, very nice tombs into the walls of that rock quarry. And Joseph of Arimathea, who was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin, had a family tomb cut there. And the way that they buried people back then was the same way they lived, and that was as extended families. So you would have a family tomb where multiple generations of the family would end up being buried there. And so Joseph had this tomb cut, and it was the most expensive kind, which had a disc-shaped stone, like a huge stone wheel uh, that was built into a slot that would roll down and seal the opening of the tomb. And because the same tomb was used for multiple burials, you would need a way to be able to open the tomb and then seal it back up. And so that's the, that's the setting of the tomb in which Jesus was buried. And it was right outside the city wall, uh, right beside the main road that led to Jaffa. And also interestingly, in that same rock quarry was a large, um, uh, rocky outcropping about 20 feet high, which the Romans had chosen as their place of crucifixion. So John is very clear about that. He says that near 
the place of crucifixion, which he also specifies was outside the city wall, there was this tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And so all of that, archaeologists have discovered underneath the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Now it's inside the walls of Jerusalem because um, not long after Jesus' death, they expanded the walls of Jerusalem. And so it's incredible that we can actually see the Rock of Golgotha. <laughs> we can actually see the remains of the tomb uh, in which Jesus was buried and from which he was raised. So it's all there. Uh, for us to see and to, to see the reality of it. Wow, that's great. I mean, so this, this it's striking to me that his burial place was right next to where he was executed and how all of that is just right there. Um, there's a lot of burial customs that, you know, we're not familiar with as Western Americans, um, but there's this, uh, uh, you know, when it, when it says Mary showed up, and Luke tells us with spices, um, you know, th there's there's there was an interruption in the burial process because of um, the, the day of preparation and and, and all this stuff. Can you explain um, just some of those those first century Jewish burial customs? What Mary uh, was probably thinking showing up on Sunday? Why she didn't show up on Saturday? Um, and just just kind of. Why, why was Jesus buried there instead of back home in Nazareth? Yeah, well, the, the burial customs of the time and still today in the Middle East, it's the same, is that a person was normally buried uh, within the same day on which they died. So uh, it was a very quick thing. And uh, normally a person uh, was taken to the site of their burial, to the tomb, and their body would be washed, uh, and then uh, they would put oil on them, and then put spices and a kind of a, a fragrant ointment on them to cover up the smell of the decaying body. And uh, then there would be a shroud wrapped around the body, kind of from head to toe. Uh, a special piece of cloth was placed over the face. It was almost like that could be removed in case somebody actually wasn't dead and they discovered it, they could pull that off. Um, they didn't have the same, of course, medical certainty that we do today. And then after that shroud and face uh, cloth was in place, they would wrap the entire body with strips of cloth, almost like we think of as a mummy. And then they would take the body and place it on either a shelf or into a slot in the tomb. And um, they would then seal up the tomb, seal the stone with clay, and, uh, and then they would leave the body for a year, and a year later they would come back, open up the tomb, gather the bones together, put them in a small bone box called an ossuary, and then that would be kept in the tomb. Um, now we know that Jesus' burial in Joseph's tomb was a shelf type, what they call an archosolia, because John tells us that there was an angel standing at the head and at the foot of where Jesus' body was laid. So that's the shelf kind. And um, Mary Magdalene, who's an amazing female disciple of great courage, she was clearly the leader of the other women disciples. And, uh, you know, they were, they were pretty clear that because the men had done this job, that it wasn't done right, right? <laughs> that's so <laughs> great. <laughs> Plus, uh, they were hurrying, you know, Joseph and Nicodemus were hurrying because it was almost sundown, and they need to get Jesus buried before the Sabbath began. 
And that's the reason it wasn't until the third day that the women came, because on the Sabbath, you had to rest and, and you couldn't go and do something like that. So early that third day, that Sunday morning after the Sabbath was over, they made their way to the tomb. And uh, Matthew tells us that uh, the, the religious leaders asked Pilate to set a guard of Roman soldiers over the tomb uh, and to seal it with a special wax seal, uh, which would be an official statement that anyone who broke that seal uh, would come under the punishment of Rome. And um, so, so the tomb was carefully guarded. Uh, and it's interesting, isn't it, that the women went anyway, knowing that Roman soldiers had crucified Jesus. And now they were, I don't know what they were thinking, if the, how they would confront these soldiers. Uh, but it just shows the courage of these uh, women disciples. Yeah, when it's, I mean, I'm presuming it's pretty dark still when they show up in the morning. Yeah. So another layer of kind of a bold act of these women, yeah. incredible. Yeah. Can, can you speak to, uh, now, uh, it's kind of odd that he's in a borrowed tomb. Um, be, it just kind of, probably crucified bodies most likely were thrown away. They weren't probably given the honor of being buried, but you know, maybe Mary and, and the family may have tried to get him back to Nazareth, but there wasn't enough time because of the time he died on Friday afternoon, there was not That's time, right. right, to get him back to their 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 tomb that they had in Nazareth with their family and their generations, and presumably yeah. next to Joseph, you know. Exactly. So can you speak to the risk that Joseph and Nicodemus, these like secret disciples within the religious hierarchy, like the major risk that they took by yeah. going to Pilate and say, we, well, we want to do this. Yeah, they certainly were in a, a tricky political position, weren't they? Because the Sanhedrin had condemned Jesus. Uh, apparently they weren't there. That, that was kind of a sham trial that the Sanhedrin ran and probably only notified the, the members of the Sanhedrin that they knew uh, were, would be voting for Jesus' condemnation. And so I think that must have shocked Joseph and uh, Nicodemus into realizing that if they were going to be followers of Jesus, they couldn't do it in secret. You know, they had to sort of make themselves known. And, and what a bold way to do it, to come to the Roman governor who had ordered Jesus' execution um, and talk about a uh, political suicide in a way of saying, we're going to align ourselves with this crucified um, you know, rabbi who has been condemned and rejected by the Jewish leadership. So uh, it was an incredible, bold, and I'm sure personally costly move for them to make, but uh, they clearly aligned themselves with Jesus in that moment, and uh, I'm sure they, they didn't regret it in the end. Absolutely. Now, I didn't know this till this week, till you taught me via your book, that there was this amazing discovery in June of 2000 of a first century Jewish body that was preserved. Um, it's the only of its kind. Can you tell us about this incredible archeological, almost accidental discovery that was made that yeah. backs up the details that John preserves for us in here? Yeah, there's a couple archeologists with some of their students were kind of taking a little walk down through the Hinnom Valley, which is just on the Southwest side of the walls of Jerusalem. And uh, there's a number of first century tombs in there and uh, they literally, yeah, stumbled across a tomb that had been opened by grave robbers, by modern grave robbers, 
who were looking for antiquities to sell on the black market. And, uh, and as they kind of examined further, they discovered an unusual situation where the body inside the tomb was also sealed into an inner chamber, uh, presumably because this person had a communicable disease, maybe leprosy. And so it was a sealed tomb that had a sealed chamber inside of it. And because that had not been broken since the first century, the actual uh, grave clothes, the grave wrappings were preserved, which is, has never been found before. Those normally would have disintegrated away. And uh, what they discovered was exactly the kind of burial shroud that we read about in John's gospel, where there was a special cloth over the face, as well as the, the burial shroud and the wrappings. And it's, I think it's fascinating the way John, and remember John and, and Peter came to the tomb, as, as you read in John there, after Mary told them. And they went inside and they, they saw they were the first ones to really examine the situation there. And what John reports as an eyewitness is that there was something about the grave cloths that was unusual, <laughs> that it was almost like the, the shroud and the wrappings were still in the place where the body was. They weren't unwrapped and th thrown off somewhere. Um, and it almost implies that Jesus rose through the grave cloths or something like that. Um, and then, interestingly, the face piece was either folded or rolled, it's the same word in Greek, was tidily folded up or rolled up and set to the side, you know, almost like, you know, it doesn't look at all like uh, grave robbing. First of all, grave robbers would have kept the linen shroud because that was quite expensive. Um, so there was something about the way the grave cloths were that really made John think, wait a minute, something mysterious has happened here. And in some ways it points us too to the nature of Jesus' resurrected body because in the other accounts of his resurrection, we have Jesus appearing in a locked room or kind of disappearing from a locked room. And we, it makes us think, oh, the risen Jesus must have been like a ghost, you know, kind of ethereal. But it's very clear from the gospels, the opposite is true. Jesus was completely physical. In fact, maybe super physical because his resurrected body is the first fruits of the new creation. And uh, I love that image C.S. Lewis gives in one of his books that actually a more solid object will pass through a less solid object. Like if you drop a rock into a glass of water, the rock passes through the water, not because the rock is ethereal, but because it's more solid than the water. And I think that's the case with Jesus in his resurrection, he's showing us what the new creation is. He's the first fruits of it, and he's super real. He's not a ghost. He is, he is super real. I mean, I love that. I have heard those arguments before: is was he a ghost? He can walk through locked doors and through, you know, the tomb and all this stuff. And and just that image of, you know, our bodies are more substantial than water. And we can swim through water and get through and push these things out of the way. And, mm -hmm. and, and yet he ate and showed them his scars and he had a physical body. It wasn't yeah. just this ghost. So I, I love that detail there that we see through the, the grave clothes. Robbers would have taken them. They wouldn't have folded them up nicely. The disciples wouldn't have done that. All the arguments that people make. The only logical reasoning is that it actually happened. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is, the, the Roman guards, can you talk about how the Roman guards... Um, 
just kind of the penalty they would have been under had they allowed someone to um, yeah, the normal, the normal Roman practice was that if a guard allowed a prisoner to escape, uh, then they would receive the same penalty as that prisoner. Um, and you know, it's a little bit of an extension to Jesus' body, but it's clear that, uh, that the Roman soldiers would have been executed. In fact, that's the case in the book of Acts uh, when Peter um, escapes from prison by the angel. Um, the, the Luke kind of gives the description that those soldiers that were guarding him were put to death. And so, uh, yeah, there was a high incentive not to, you know, not to uh, fall asleep at your post or whatever. Um, but when those guards were confronted by these powerful angels, they were just so freaked out that they, they literally deserted their post, even at the risk of their lives. As it was, Matthew tells us that the, the religious leaders arranged for uh, those Roman guards to be bribed uh, to tell the story that Jesus' body was stolen. But, uh, you know, the, the historical evidence is very clear that uh, what the Gospels record is what happened. Yeah. My favorite detail of this story, which personally uh, is why I always choose to read John 20 on Easter, is the, the first herald of the resurrection is Mary Magdalene, a, a woman, and not just a woman, but a, a, a spiritually suspect woman who was a former uh, demoniac. Can you give us some insight just on how a woman's testimony, especially making other men look um, unfavorable, how that would have been unthinkable to, if you were creating a conspiracy, you would not go, let's start with Mary and make, make her, uh, or let her make all the disciples look bad and afraid and cowards, right? Can you give us some like flesh to that idea? Yeah, it's, it's so important to remember that the gospels are eyewitness accounts. They're written by people who saw these events themselves or in, in the case of Luke was interviewing the eyewitnesses who saw them, or Mark who was recording Peter's eyewitness accounts. So these are firsthand accounts of what happened. And uh, all the gospels agree that the women were the first ones to see the empty tomb and to encounter the risen Jesus. And uh, in Josephus, the first century Jewish historian tells us that uh, women's testimony was not admissible in court because they were considered in a patriarchal biased society, they were considered unreliable. And so, like you said, if, if they were concocting this story, there's no way they would ever say, oh, it was women who first saw this because it would kind of call into question uh, the, the veracity of their account. Um, and, uh, and so I think that, you know, we see a number of evidences that this story was not made up by the disciples. Another, another reason is that when you read the four gospels, each one gives a little bit different version of what happened. And uh, it can be a little bit confusing when you try to put all four together because they don't fit neatly together. And uh, if, if, you're a, uh, if you're a prosecutor in a courtroom and a series of witnesses' testimonies all match perfectly, you are immediately going to be suspect of that testimony because 
people's real life testimony never matches exactly. Everybody has a slightly different perspective and angle and remembers things a little bit different way. And so it's actually more authentic and more credible when the witnesses' stories don't quite match up, but they agree in substance. And that's what we have in the Gospels is, I mean, it was, a, it was an overwhelming experience and all of these people didn't ex kind of see it and experience it in exactly the same way, but they all record the same basic events that Jesus really died, that he was buried, that he really was raised again, that he physically demonstrated who he was uh, and that he was fully alive. And uh, so what we have is an in incredibly uh, accurate, credible, just on historical terms, um, a very compelling account of Jesus' resurrection. Yeah, I, I've talked to people before who have said, well, all these details don't line up, and so this is fabricated. And trial lawyers, like you point out, know the opposite. Uh, if it all lines up, you suspect collusion and coaching, yes. and none of that's there. The fact that we're not sure, like, was there two angels or one angel? How many were with Mary? Was she by herself? When other people say they're, like, who is, in what order did this happen? The fact that some of those details are little fuzzies actually gives credibility to the historic nature of this, um, which is just so amazing. Yeah. Kind of the, the, the last thing, probably most people consider the behavior of the apostles post-resurrection to be the most um, credible evidence of the, of the resurrection. Can you describe kind of how they were prior and then how they all gave their lives in very different countries without recanting while being tortured when it wasn't in their economic or political best interest? That's probably the most overwhelming witness to the resurrection is Something happened on that Sunday morning yeah. that changed people's lives and yeah. continues to do so today. Yeah, the disciples pre-resurrection are kind of, uh, they're a bit flaky, aren't they? They're like, they're still vying for positions of power. They're still denying what Jesus has told them about his ultimate destiny. Uh, when, you know, they all flee when Jesus is arrested. Most of them are in hiding all through the time after Jesus crucified, they're not the most impressive, you know, courageous bunch. Um, but after the resurrection, there is this incredible courage, faith, and power. Um, and, and certainly part of that is being filled with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. But, uh, but it begins with this experience they have of the resurrected Jesus. And ultimately, we, we don't have all the accounts in Scripture, but between the scriptural accounts and the, the accounts of the earliest church traditions, we know that 11 of the 12 disciples, all of them except for John, uh, ended up being uh, executed for their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, as you said, some of them went as far as you know, India, uh, different parts of, of Europe and North Africa and so forth. Um, but under tremendous persecution, none of them recanted their testimony, you know? And if, if this was a conspiracy, if, if this was a story they made up or a lie or, or just some dream they had or something like that, there's no way that any sane person would choose to die for a lie, right? Now, some people will die for something because they believe in it, but they weren't actually the eyewitnesses of it. 
But if you were an eyewitness, you would know if it's true or not, right? You could unwittingly believe a lie thinking it's true and still be willing to die for that. We see that in religious extremism today. But if you were the eyewitness and you knew whether it was true or not true, why would you choose to, to suffer a terrible, tortuous death for something you knew that wasn't true? And so the fact that these men, and ultimately women as well, were willing to lay down their lives for this testimony, I think is the most compelling evidence that Jesus really did die, that he really did rise again. And in, in that is our greatest hope, isn't it? That, that he has conquered sin, death, hell, and the devil, and he's given us not just the hope, but the certainty of a, a life that begins today, an indestructible life that even death cannot destroy. Amen. Yeah, we're in a time where there's so much news of death and, yeah. and, and hope is grim for many. And there's not, we're not really certain what's going to happen. Will life return to normal? What will the stock market do? What will our lives be like? I mean, there's just massive question marks on yes. our life and existence. And I love that in this season of Easter, we get to just narrow our focus and say, we need to be reminded hourly of the one who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Yes. There's so much bad news out there, and, and it's bad news, right? But, but we, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we have a greater hope beyond that. And yes. the resurrection points us. It's anchored in that historic event that happened. Yes. The, yep. uh, I love what you said here. I want to close our time with this. Um, I think this is on page 336. You kind of sum all of this up. You say, no first century Jew would fabricate a story that was first witnessed by women who put their male counterparts to shame. No Roman guard would willingly allow a sealed tomb to be opened and robbed when he knew his life depended on preventing that. No grave robber would carefully unwrap and arrange valuable grave clothes, leaving them behind in a tomb. No imposter would bear the wounds of the cross and be able to appear and disappear at will from a rock tomb and locked rooms. No conspiracy would ever promote and maintain a lie that consistently resulted in poverty, persecution, and painful death for themselves, for their loved ones, for many years spread out over many countries. When we look at the gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection in light of archaeology, history, and culture, we see that it constitutes clear and convincing eyewitness testimony that Jesus died, rose from the dead, was gloriously transformed, appeared to many disciples, and ascended into heaven. I love that. Thank you for putting those words together because it just so, in like two paragraphs, concisely wraps up the, the most important uh, historical, cultural, archaeological evidence that that means something to our lives, and uh, that's awesome. It's been a great encouragement to me. I know it's encouraging everyone who's watching and listening right now. Um, thanks for being with us. Uh, tell Pam we said hi. We certainly miss y'all. Um, if people want to learn more about your ministry, your books, what what y'all are up to, um, where could we find you? At justmyname.com, so bobwronglian.com. It's a little hard to spell, so uh, <laughs> email uh, Pastor Drew if you need to know how to spell it. But yeah, bobwronglian.com will give you all the info, and you can find the, the books on Amazon as well. Awesome. Well, Bless you guys. We love you and Shari and the boys, and uh, just pray a, a glorious Easter for all of you there. 
Amen. Likewise with you. Okay. Bye-bye. History tells us that the crucifixion and resurrection happened, but the Bible tells us why it happened, to save us from our sins and restore us to life with God. That is Jesus' heart for you, life. There's a blessing in believing the resurrection. In John 20, verse 29, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection too. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Further, the resurrection changes and transforms us. In Colossians 3, again, Paul says, If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Just as the resurrection changed the early disciples and everyone who has since heard and received this truth, I invite you today to open your heart to the resurrection power of Christ. Perhaps you're like Mary, where you show up, mourning, ready to make preparations because of death. Jesus wants to call your name. He wants to surprise you with life. He wants to change you into a person that is not concerned about death, but as someone who is living in the life stream of God. The, the reason why we call it the good news is because that's available to you, not based on anything you do, not based on religious experience or religious involvement, but simply based on the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It costs him everything, and it's an invitation for you to take up life. What is dead in your life right now that needs new life in Christ? Jesus, we thank you that you are more than a legend. You are more than a liar or a lunatic. We confess that you are the Lord. Not a Lord, but the Lord. The Lord over sin, death, hell, the grave, the evil one, all of our problems. On this Resurrection Sunday, we give our lives to you. We give our minds, our bodies, our hearts, our souls, our wills, our emotions, all of the places in our life that are dead. And we ask you to come, Holy Spirit, and awaken us, bring the resurrection power into every nook and cranny of our life that needs it. And for those who are discouraged and down in the preparations of death, just as you called Mary's name, God, I pray today you would call our name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.